In their last stand at the United States Capitol, the Bonus Army broke through police lines and surged up the steps as they staged a final demonstration which they hoped would induce the government to pay the cash they demanded. As the huge throng waited on the steps and the plaza, they learned that Congress had adjourned without taking any action, and it left the veterans who were besieging the legislators with nothing to work on. While thousands stood about the entrance to get the latest news, a determined few kept shuffling along on a futile march of protest. A weary patrol around the capital. And welcome to another episode of the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. I am Joe. I am Nick. And today we are, if you can tell from our intro, we're doing something a little bit different today. Um, I couldn't find any music that pertained to the air that probably didn't involve flappers and the like. So, uh, And that would bring in licensing issues and everything else, but the intro kind of gave away what we're talking about today. Yes. Uh, but before we get to that, how are you doing, Nick? I'm doing great. Drinking shitty whiskey. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, we try to theme what we drink for every episode. I mean, we're pretty loose with it. Like, yeah. pretty much every Russian episode is random vodka that we find. Um, British episodes, we drink British beer. Um, French episodes, we drink wine. Right. We... We did not drink tequila for our Mexican episode because we, we felt like making it through the whole podcast. Right. Um, so we figured we're doing the bonus army, meaning the Great Depression. Everybody's broke as shit. What would they drink? Obviously, we're not going to go find some moonshine here in the Puget Sound area of western Washington. From somebody's fucking bathroom. Right. So we went and bought, and by we I mean Nick, went and bought really, really cheap whiskey. And it's called Old Crow. And it is not it's good. Rough. It is a plastic jug that is probably hidden behind the counter to stop shoplifting. And it, I'm fairly certain they'd rather have people shoplift it. It's it's like one of those. It it, it tastes like it's actually made out of crows. Ugh, <sighs> it's disgusting. It's so bad. Um, but we'll uh, push through. Yeah, it, it just tastes like chemistry, but it's like chemistry that I did, which means it's bad and, and tastes I like... I take chemistry, so... I didn't either. That's why I said it. Uh, so, yeah, my school, funny story, my friend went to college. Um, I, went, I went to college and took college chemistry, and I assumed it was like an entry-level chemistry class. Right. It's not. They actually assume that your high school taught you chemistry before you got there. Mine did not. I'd be <laughs> fucked. I was fucked. Dude. I had to drop the class. <laughs> I had to quit. <laughs> um, anyway, so today's episode brings us to the United States of America for the first time. And people have actually given a shit for this. And we, we kind of deserve it. Uh, we haven't covered any American anything other than you know North America as a whole um, until we got here. And it's not the Civil War. It's not the Revolution. Uh, think again. Like I said, and like our intro gave away, we're talking about the bonus army. Right. Very obscure. Um, it's not taught in history it's classes. Not. It's kind of glossed over. I mean, it's kind of, I, I guess, to give an excuse to history teachers everywhere, it's that it's overshadowed by the Great Depression. Right. But I am going to say, personal opinion, not a historical fact here, but... It is glossed over because America has uh, propped up some kind of sacred cow uh, altar on veterans as a whole. And we don't want to remember the times other than like Vietnam where people say they spit on veterans in the airport, even though that you know didn't happen. Um, they didn't want to remember the part like outright violence was mm-hmm. taking part. And this is uh, compared, this is also paired with. Um, anti-union violence at the time where people literally died so you could have your weekends right so those two kind of compare uh kind of smash together throw in a dash of communism and socialism and your history teacher does not want to teach it um so me and nick are going to be your history teachers for the day which means i feel sorry for right, you good luck i know i'm vaguely familiar with the bonus army uh, but that's mostly because i'm a, a unionist and a socialist so I tend to study these things a bit more um, and, and other union, anti-union riot, riots and violence at the time, which actually we're going to touch on a little bit because of an organization that's involved in, it, in this situation. Uh, but Nick, did you know anything about this? In all honesty, the only thing I knew from this was Hatton was involved, MacArthur, and I knew of some train shit that happened, and we'll get into that because I knew some guy when I used to reenact that was... Totally in the trains. 
fucking cosplay, <laughs> goddammit. Um, so before we get into the saga that is the bonus army, we have to talk a little bit about how bonuses historically worked in the U.S. Army up to this time. And I know I can hardly contain myself either. This is going to be exciting, talking about enlistment bonuses. Um, so a good example of enlistment bonus and service bonus, because uh, we're not talking about pensions. Pensions are when you retire. Right. Uh, we're talking about bonuses. Uh, my first enlistment bonus, I enlisted back in 2005 for four years. That bonus was $4,000, and I thought that was really, really great. Because uh, I was 17 years old. Right. What was, did you get a bonus? No. A at all. I was supposed to get a bonus for my re-enlistment. And <laughs> once I signed the paperwork, I said, oh, yeah, you don't get a bonus. Just so you know. I was like, oh. Your bonus was the big green weenie. Basically, which is. My re-enlistment yes. bonus was $20,000 for six years, um, which I didn't end up completing because my broke ass fell apart. But, um. So the practice of wartime and enlistment bonuses began all the way back in 1776 in the days of the militia and the Continental Army. Back then, soldier would have his day job salary evaluated against how much or how long he would have served, and the Continental Congress would just pay the difference. Right. So you would have made X amount of money if you didn't go shoot at redcoats. So we're going to pay you X amount. Um, so you know the normal. I mean, the continents weren't rich. You know, your normal soldier, just like today, is poor and from a farm. So, you know, you get the difference. You don't get a huge bonus, but when you get out, you get a little bit of seed money because kind of like today, when you get out of basic training, you haven't spent any money in four months because you haven't been allowed to. So it's a nice chunk of change. Yeah, and then you blow it. Yeah, you blow in something stupid. Back then, it was probably like a horse cart with spinners. Today, <laughs> today it's a Challenger with like 24% interest. Challenger, Charger, Mustang, yeah. either one of the three. Um, Pick your poison. But on top of that, they would also be gifted land, which is a pretty big fucking deal in a society of farmers. Um, the size of the plot would depend on what rank you held at the time of your exit. So at war's end, a Continental Army private, a private if you're unfamiliar at all with military ranks and rankings, are the lowest of the low, uh, would get 100 acres of land and about 80 bucks. Today, 80 bucks is about $1,900. So it's a, it's a decent chunk. Yeah. In order to qualify for these benefits, you had to serve a minimum of 14 days or fight in one battle. Um, now, I guess you kind of have to think about the time where when large groups of men congregated together in the field, dysentery and other, like typhoid and other shit right. was, was rampant. So surviving 14 days without dying, I guess it's a high the five. Its, it yeah. Its own. And, you know, surviving a battle, I serve, I guess... I don't know if I want to consider anything I was ever involved in a battle because you think of battle as like thousands of people on thousands of people, but you know, surviving a line battle against the British regular army is a pretty big deal. Oh yeah. Um, so, you know, today we get free college. Um, I get free healthcare for the rest of my life. Um, but I feel like I would trade it in for the 1700 version of the benefits package I would too. because like I have VA care for the rest of my life, but the quality of healthcare that they dispense is about the quality that a continental army private would get anyway um you know might as well give me some land too yeah 14 days right fuck yeah that's not even basic no <laughs> you know like some half brain dead doctor sawing off my leg without with a kitchen knife and then just prescribing me way too many opiates so, like, it's it's virtually the same. It's fucking two weeks of my time. Like, fuck it, let's do it. Yeah, and I did some research. Uh, 100 acres, so we're in western Washington. Um, if if you can't really picture that, Puget Sound, Tacoma, Seattle area, even though we're in a town you've never heard of, so I just use those. Um, 100 acres would make me a millionaire right now uh, where I live. I looked it up, and no one's even selling 100 acres. But the closest thing you can find is 78 acres for $1.4 million dollars. Um, I doubt a Continental Army private had to deal with, like, Jeff Bezos' legion of asshole tech workers pricing them out of the market, but that's still a pretty sweet deal. Anyway, this package is really easy for the government to handle because the U.S. regular army at the time was incredibly small. Um, this is a different era of, like, we, they didn't have a constant forever war in a million-man army. Right. And, in fact, the Continental Army was kind of considered shady. They were ragtag as shit. Well, I mean, even beside that, like... Every state wanted its militia to check right. the federal army, and that's why, I mean, 
in its creation. That's why the Second Amendment existed, is because large standing armies were thought of um, as being a possible future enemy because that's what the Redcoats used their army for, you know, with the non-paying of quarters and, yeah. and being garrisoned everywhere. And that's actually something I'm going to get into a little bit more. Uh, I'm writing a book with Bill Fulton about the history of the Second Amendment um, called Saving the Second, and I'll shill that more as it comes to fruition, but keep that in your mind for down the road. Um, anyway, at the time, land was plentiful. Uh, assuming you weren't bothered by the fact there was actually natives living on it and you had to kind of kick them off to, to keep your land. And if you know anything about U.S. history, no one was bothered by this at the time. None. So, None at all. Free land. Um, eventually, though, as Indian Wars crawled on and then the Indian War veterans um, were grandfathered into this, so they also got land. Um, and land holdings were passed down through family lines, as was tradition at the time. People began to see the issue with this benefits package as veterans stopped dying so quickly. It became a major political issue as veterans eventually found themselves in possession of nearly half of all the useful land in several states. <laughs> and if veterans back then are any different than veterans today, and I'm assuming we're, we're a little different, but we're also still the same, um, they probably fucked the land up. Oh, fuck that, dude. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, soon there wasn't any land left to give out, and in 1855 they decided to move to a cash-only system. And in some occasions they said, fuck the cash, you get nothing. I feel like it was more of like an IOU type of thing. In in theory, it probably was supposed to be, and then yeah. the, and then it was like what happened to you, where like yeah, we'll totally give you a bonus, and then the bonus never came. Yeah, that sweet ten thousand that never came. Or like what happened to me when I reenlisted, and I got twenty thousand dollars. I also got an education deferment, which means uh, I my commander signs paperwork, and I get to go to college for right. six months. Guess who oh, didn't yeah. get, guess who didn't get to go to college for six months? This guy. Nice. Yeah. So uh, veterans of the Spanish-American War didn't get any fucking bonus at all. And uh, the loophole they used is that the regulars who fought in the Spanish-American War weren't technically regulars. They were volunteers, but not militia volunteers. They volunteered under the National Army. Um, but because they were quote-unquote volunteers, they got no bonus. But the same volunteers in the Civil War got a bonus. Right. So the, the government's just cheap and it's give a fuck. Uh, which will be a reoccurring thing here. Um, and It still goes on. Yeah. yeah. It, it, they're not cheap if you're like Northrop Grumman or Boeing and you're making weapons. Yeah. But if you're like Chet from Connecticut <laughs> and you want to enlist, get fucked. Yeah. <laughs> Basically. Yeah. Uh, so uh, when World War I rolled around, the brave soldiers of the American Expeditionary Force, which is what our mission was called to France would receive only $60 for their service. There are cash bonuses taking a hurting because the U.S. military grew rapidly from a small, suspicious-like uh, national army to a massive national one, um, and it would overtake the state militias for the first time. Um, and, and this kind of happened, uh, I guess, officially for the first time during the Civil War because all the militias were nationalized, and that's when you have things like the 20th Maine and the 24th yeah. Michigan. But um, this is like the first time where nobody's even playing the game of state militias. It's just like, no, 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 you're the fucking United States Army, you're the Marine Corps, let's stop playing this game. Right. Uh, but anyway, you grow from a 7,000-man army to a half-a-million-man army, money's going to run pretty short. Very. Especially because up until that point, soldiers were training with wooden rifles that didn't actually function, so... Pew, pew. Yeah. They were, they were what we called hua bullets. The, the, your unit didn't have, actually have enough money to use ammunition, so you had to make gun noises with your mouth. Um, but, you know, a whole army, and they suddenly had to create a million rifles. And that um, sounds very familiar to World War One on the British side, yeah, which we talked about before in our Hague episode. First episode. Sorry, second episode. Second episode. Yeah, first episode was Luigi Cadorna. I am stupid. Um, so, as you can imagine, these vets, after suffering... And surviving the horrors of the Great War, we're pretty fucking pissed about getting shortchanged and getting sixty bucks. Right. Um, the um, so this is where I talked about the the, the anti-communism and the um, union crushing coming in, and it's it's weird. It's like I dubbed it in the Pavel Gratchev episode, I believe. Pralines and dick. Pralines <laughs> and dick. The ice cream flavor. It is how I would describe the American Legion now. I know a lot of people, maybe, I don't know what 
wing our audience fluctuates in. I assume they follow one of us on Twitter or found us somewhere. So they're generally centrist to left wing. So they're okay with me insulting the American Legion. Um, But I'm not insulting as much as I am quoting historical fact. And that is something that I always make sure I point out. And I'll try to point out whenever it's me just getting petty, which I'll do later too. Um, But the American Legion was a veterans advocacy group, and it still is. Um, Some people listening might actually be a member and just don't know their history. Um, So it was formed in 1919 and immediately began to demand a higher payment of bonuses for World War I veterans. And that's the preludes part. Um, They're veteran activists. Um, But that's when we have to look at the American Legion for what it really was. So uh, we covered this a little bit during our, our Hague episode and a little bit, tiny bit, during our Cadorna episode. Um, so World War I in the trenches during the later portions war, especially on the French side, where you have to remember is a, where a lot of the American Expeditionary Force ended up, the French were sick and tired of the war. There had been uh, multiple mutinies, right. which would involve several people being lined up against the wall and shot, which is actually going to be a topic we're going to cover at a later date. But morale was at an all-time low. At the same time, the Bolshevik Revolution pulled the Russian Empire out of the war. Um, And the Bolshevism and Marxism did not stay in Eastern Europe and in Russia. It spread throughout the trenches to include France. And a lot of people in the French trenches were talking heavily about, hey, they got out of this war. Why can't we? Why are these people sending us to die uh, in this meaningless war that, you know, gods and kings started, effectively? Because you have the Kaiser and the fucking Tsar and the king and the emperor and all this other shit. Then you have, you know, Private Jacques, who is sick of surviving his third fucking day at Verdun. Um, suddenly, you know, they, they want more equality. Right. You um, did her fucking ran thin. And American soldiers would walk right into that mess. Um, and they would be exposed maybe for the first time in socialist and communist ideals and Marxism, and which would turn to Bolshevism. Um, that was terrifying to General John Pershing, who was in charge of the American Expeditionary Force. Uh, so when he saw American morale falling and being heavily influenced by these leftist ideas but that the French soldiers had, he, he had to think of something. And that something was the American Legion. Uh, He pulled together a whole bunch of incredibly conservative officers who wanted to form something to get people's morales up. And they did. Like, they they may have had, and this may have been based on politics, but, you know, they got um, activities for soldiers in the front lines to do. Uh, They came up with new ideas, because one of the things that he did was, hey, how can we raise morale? And they're like, well, let's rotate people from the front more often. Let's get movies or let's get, you know, bands and musicians to, to the rear troops before they rotate to the fore, right. to the front. So well, they really did good. Like I said, Praline's a dick. The anti-political stuff is the dick, and here comes the bigger <laughs> dick. Um, so the Legion would go on to be involved in a massacre against the industrial workers of the world in Centralia, Washington, which I am very familiar with for reasons I won't go into. Um, so what happened was, is the IWW wanted to organize labor in the area. And the American Legion said that was bad. Pretty much what it came down to is unions weren't forming with the IWW wanted to create a union hall. Uh, pretty much a place where workers could get together after work, have a beer, um, and try to organize unions. Um, instead what happened is the American Legion attacked them. And four people were killed. Now that's what not a fuck? that's not a terrible large number, uh, and it it is because they're assaulting people for wanting to unionize. Right. But when you look at um, other massacres from the Union eras, uh, it, it gets worse. But and I know there's this might be a rose tinted glasses type situation, but what it came down to is the American Legion were armed and the IWW were. So one came to fight and one did not. And in another part of Legion history was when Legion Commander Elvin Oswally, when speaking in 1923, said that Italian-style fascism 
was the best way to defend the nation. And re he personally repeatedly invited Benito Mussolini to speak at Legion events all the way up until 1930. What the fuck? Yeah. So, Praline's a dick. Anyway. Buy that plane ticket. And, you know, there's, there's a Legion hall I see every day driving through, um, what is it, Tonino? And you won't hear or see any of this stuff in their history because they know it's dirty. Um, but it, it still exists. And But, like I said, they do advocate for soldiers' rights. They were one of the leading advocates for the Montgomery Jai Bill. But, I mean, that's like, I think I said it earlier, it's kind of like, and I really hate to uh, invoke Godwin's law here, but you know the, the Nazis outlawed smoking in public, too. Like, horrible organizations can do good things. Yeah. But that doesn't make them a good organization. Um, but to bring it back on topic, um, now that I'm off my pedestal, um, in 1924... <laughs> really fucking high. Yeah, it's, it's a high You pedestal. fucking lost me. <laughs> no, I learned some shit, so that was cool. Fun facts, uh, but not so fun because a bunch of people died. And also, Benito Mussolini almost went and talked at veterans' events. Um, in 1924, President Calvin Coolidge vetoed a bill that the uh, American Legion pushed forward that would have granted a larger bonus to World War I veterans, saying, quote, patriotism bought and paid for is not patriotism. And as big of a dick move that is, I kind of agree. I'm not a patriot. I may have enlisted and got benefits for fighting in America's wars, but right. I, I do not consider myself a patriot. Uh, maybe it's because the term patriot's been kind of polluted. Um, but I, I wouldn't consider myself a patriot. I consider well, myself yeah. an employee. A lot of people have their own definition of patriotism, and a lot right. of people have really fucked up definitions of patriotism, which I know a lot of people who have really fucked up definitions of patriotism. Absolutely. Um, I think it's measured by how big the truck nuts are. Yes, in your lift. Yeah. How many flags and Gadsden flags do you have on your truck? Don't come in me. <laughs> um, so after he said that, which I assume he did not accept his paycheck for his work either, because I mean, he's the president of the United States. He's a civil servant. Um, civil servants are obviously supposed, obviously supposed to work for free. Uh, <laughs> Congress thankfully overrode his veto, enacting the World War Adjusted Compensation Act, each veteran reserved a dollar a day for each day of domestic servants, d sorry, domestic service, up to a max of $500, and $1.25 for each day of overseas service with a cap of $625. Amounts of $50 or less were paid out immediately. Everyone else would have to wait 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Basically, the big green weenie comes and just looms around the corner and says, you don't get a dime until 1945. <laughs> and I know they passed this law without thinking of the future, but, and I, they wouldn't know what's going to happen in 20 years, but conspiracy! still. <laughs> but, you know, I can, I, I, that's a conspiracy I'll buy into. Uh, <laughs> the government actually started another word to create more veterans to fuck over payment to other veterans. <laughs> but, um, you know, no government plans twenty years ahead of time. No, um, but you can you can also get this money if you die. Yeah. So, which is why it was also known as the tombstone bonus. Tombstone bonus. It was known as also the tombstone bonus. Why the fuck didn't we come up with that name for our SSI? Because <laughs> so for people who aren't aware. If you die, it, you don't even have to be in combat. If you die in active service, and I actually carried mine over, because I'm under various circumstances, I get to carry a lot of my benefits over. I won't go into my service history, but it's worth a half million dollars. Right. But we never came up with a sweet nickname for it. The tombstone bonus is fucking awesome. I hope you carry that forward. I wish I could. They won't let me do a lot. <laughs> I've also tried asking for a Viking funeral, which they said I cannot do. You have to change your uh, religious preference to pagan or something. Still won't let me do it. That's a shame. Because I also asked for a Jedi funeral if I said I'd be a Jedi. What the fuck is a Jedi funeral? They lay you on a piece of wood and you burn to death. Well, yeah, you're that's a Viking dead, funeral. Yeah, but you're not going out into some sweet water. Does it mean you have to go into space? And just with an arrow. It lands perfectly on your boat. You have to think of the logistical issues here of getting a, uh, finding an archer who can fire a flaming arrow into your boat. Not a lot of people in the army no, can do that. Not. I'll do for you the crossbow. I want 
long gone. I'll probably just end up shooting in the tank. <laughs> <laughs> Not even lighting on fire. Bringing it back around. Like Nick said, these bonuses wouldn't be paid out until 1945 or until they died. Um, and these are for bonuses they should have gotten prior to 1918. Um, all attempts to get the Congress to pay out the remainder failed. And soon the nation was neck deep in the Great Depression. Uh, meaning that not only were tens of thousands of veterans pissed, they are now unemployed and desperately broke. Um, now, before we get into this next part, um, I know a lot of you are probably going to be pissy because we're not bringing up the other marches on Washington, D.C. for uh, benefits and unemployment and everything else. And I would, but one, it's not really... I won't. Yeah, I would, but it's not really... Uh, important to this story and I'm trying to keep the podcast under an hour and a half to two hours but just yeah. know that, that. Yeah, just, just know that uh, marching on DC was kind of normal it's kind of like not necessarily marching on DC now because uh, it rarely happens but think of it more like picketing your local state building or I don't know um, taking over a bird sanctuary in Oregon it happens but you know um so on March 15th, 1932, unemployed former Army Sergeant Walter Waters held a gathering of veterans in the greater Portland area. He was furious at government action and urged them all to march on D.C. It's not like they had anything better to do. It's not like they're going to work. No. Um, soon out, 300 of them began to make well, their way to the nation's capital, most of them through rails. So before this, a lot of veterans were just like, who the fuck is this guy? And they'd basically shoo him off, and they wouldn't listen to him. So another month would pass by. He'd say so. He'd stand up again and say, "We need to say something." They would shoo him off again. And then this round, this time frame, mid Marchish, round March, they go. You know what? Yeah, something needs to be done. Like shit's going downhill. We gotta get something. I think they so realized they start, that. Yeah, it wasn't getting better. Yeah, no, it wasn't. They're not getting their fucking money for fucking. Years. Yeah, and, you know, I'm actually going to pose a question to both of us um, at the end of this podcast, but um, the, this this was money that they that the government said was theirs, right? Um, and they just weren't getting it. And this is the time where the entire country is scrabbling to make a living. Um, and the 300 or so, give or take, uh, began to make their way towards the nation's capital, jumping on rails. Um, and this is... You know, the 1930s, but uh, as they headed east, the media took an interest in their story. Radio shows, newspapers, and film crews followed them around, like some kind of weird peacetime camp followers, and uh, report on their every mission. And you know what? I'll go a little bit more into it, just because it's kind of fucking cool, and it's kind of funny. Uh, as soon as they got to St. Louis, around the Baltimore-ish area, like, the railroad, like, took a stand and said, you know what, no, you guys cannot travel free, you guys need to pay or something. Right, because before then, all the rail workers were sympathetic because even though they had jobs, they were being crushed by anti-union forces and they were having a hard time making a living. So they are like, fuck yeah, dude, go stick it to the man. Yeah, and then they are like, you know what, we should really get paid for this too. But a standoff ensued, during which the veterans refused to allow any... Like, moving a train's going eastbound. And they soaked the lines. Did they? Yeah, they, so they, they, made, they effectively made the railroads inoperative. Um, soaping the lines is old-timey speak, for they literally lubricated the lines so it was unsafe for trains to use. Fuck that. What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> so they just wouldn't use them. Get fucked. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so... Saint, uh, the basically the railroad companies just tried going around the veterans and whatnot, but nah, this didn't really work out because now the National Guard got involved, yep. and they didn't want anything to do with it, so they just basically transported them, saying, you're not our problem, you're the next state's problem. What was even and dumber was going. like the Illinois governor, a guy named Louis Emerson, called out the National Guard, but his excuse was the veterans were disrupting mail service. What the fuck? Yeah, so like you know, they they stopped all of the trains from running, so therefore nobody can get their mail. And you know, whatever the nineteen thirty version of Jeff Bezos, who's trying to ship shit over the rails, were like, "Hey, where the fuck's all my money?" Um, but thankfully, uh, a guy who we will demonize in a little later, uh, Chief of Staff General MacArthur, 
Um, He's a fucking nut. He is, but he had enough foresight at the time to see sicking soldiers on poor, distraught veterans would look bad. The optics were terrible, and he shot the plan down to send in the uh, National Guard. Right. Um, he resolved the stalemate by organizing veterans who had been on the train to get on trucks instead, um, which is a surprising They're amount of foresight for a guy who's about to fuck up magnificently later. Basically passing off the problem to the next guy. And it, and it quickly became, like, national news right. when this shit happened. Like, this shit's coming. And, you know, I think MacArthur, maybe instead of to play devil's advocate, wasn't necessarily trying to kind of push the responsibility on somebody else. I think he knew soldiers and would just assume they'd get bored and go home. <laughs> like, I don't know. I think I'd want my money more than... <laughs> Right, but I mean, I, I know And soldiers. at that time, I don't have anything to do. There's not really, like, fucking internet porn. There's not, like... I mean, he's the cheapest ass. Cool he probably... Out. So I'd probably go live it up in a fucking Hooverville right. for a few days. It's the best you can go for anyway. Yeah. And I mean, I think he misunderstood. I mean, he's the cheapest staff. He wasn't living rough. Right. Nobody in government was no. living rough. He misunderstood and misunder- misunderestimated the, um, the motivation of everybody because it was either we get our bonuses or we fucking starve. Right. And I think they thought they were just dealing with a whole bunch of broke people and not a whole bunch of broke, desperate people. Yeah. And a whole, a whole bunch of broke, desperate soldiers who just sat through the fucking Western Front of World War One. And I've seen what desperate soldiers do when they're broke. Yeah. And these guys even marry any strippers, because I'm pretty yeah. sure stripping was illegal. And rough. Yeah. So, on May 25th, 1932, the first veterans arrived in D.C. with Waters and his train terrorists... Arriving a few days later. Uh, within a few weeks, they were joined by about 20,000 more people. They popped up camps wherever they could, built out of anything they could get their hands on. Any massive shanty town, which this is the Depression area, so they were known as Hoovervilles, sprang up seemingly overnight around the Anacostia River. Soon, this 1900s version of Occupy Wall Street turned into a local attraction. People flocked to the camp to hang out, give supplies, and cook for the veterans. And this is a pretty big deal. This is the Great Depression. Nobody has disposable income. Nobody has disposable food. But people are still showing up to donate and cook and feed these guys. Right. So, you know, before Toby Keith started singing about support the troops, <laughs> people actually just went out and did it. And right. they didn't have bumpers to put stickers on, so they actually just went out and took care of them. Right. And- uh, and this, then, is, this is more than the veteran thing, because people did this for a lot of people in Hoovervilles at the time. There was a uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, police chief who was a former brigadier general during the Great War. They named the camp after him. Exactly. And uh, he uh, gave abandoned buildings that were scheduled for demo uh, in the future to these uh, guys, basically saying, I'd rather have protesters than have rioters on my hands. Right. And he tried to basically give, like, what's the word I'm looking for, uh... That wasn't necessarily appeasement. He supported them. Right. He, they they it, named yeah. the camp after it and named it Camp Marks. Well, he gave them, what was it, 48 hours in Washington, D.C., technically? At first. Yeah. And it ended up being like three months. Well, I mean, I think he realized that these guys had a point And they weren't doing anything wrong. And not to mention, what difference is this Hooverville than any of the other ones that popped up? I mean... This camp got so big, it turned into a weird pseudo-city with named streets, a library, a post office, and a barber shop. And, you know, I'm going to assume it's as gross as every other town that pops up around every army base. Yeah. Like, every single city that pops up around an army base is gross. Very true. Yeah, and I assume this is, like, worse than that. Fuck yeah, dude. They even published their own newspapers and staged games and shows for the growing populace. Camp Mark's rules were few, but strict. No booze, no weapons, no fighting, and no begging. Which goes to show this generation of veterans cannot be more different than the one I'm currently a part of. I know a dozen dudes overseas who took part in some or all of those activities within the last 24 hours. Um, They also had a strict no-communist rule. Remember, the American Legion is involved here. But that rule will end up being broken. And we're going to take a slight sidestep here to tell you a little bit about a guy who came and spoke to the veterans and was beloved by the veterans and they listened to him 
a Marine Corps legend and retired Major General named Smedley Butler. He showed up to speak and encourage the marchers. He led a life so weird it's definitely worth a mention. Butler is one of 19 people to ever receive the Medal of Honor more than once and fought in the Spanish-American War, in the Philippines War, the Boxer Rebellion, and countless actions in South America, and of course the Great War. He was also an avowed socialist who once propositioned by a powerful industrial tycoon group to lead a fascist coup against President Franklin Delano Roosevelt in a conspiracy that is now known as the Business Plot. Um, obviously, he shut them down and reported them to Congress as soon as he could, but nobody was ever punished for it. Right. He, though he was a supporter of prohibition, so Praline's a dick. <laughs> um, after Butler's camp speech, also point out Smedley, he's the only dude that could pull, pull that off as a first name. Smedley. I don't even think then, because Smedley's such a... Dude, he has two like Medal of Honors. Fucking... He has two Medal of Honors. His name could be fucking Taint. He's fine with it. His name could be Stacy. Stacy. <laughs> I really have Stacy. Um, Smedley. Smedley. It's, it sounds like... Fuck it. It sounds like a mixture of smell and medley. Uh, so Butler's speech at Camp Marks eventually made the Hoover gro- Hooverville grow to the largest in the entire country. Um, though there were signs posted and everything, so that makes it super official. Communists were everywhere in the camp. As you can imagine, this is obviously common at the time. Right. This is the Great Depression. The entire country was a shining example of the failures of capitalism at the time, and the veterans had brought back leftist sympathies from the trenches of the Great War. This is not to say that the bonus march was a communist movement. It definitely wasn't. No, it wasn't. I do not mean to frame this in a red light, uh, but there was definitely sympathies. But others may say this is a communist. Well, that's exactly that's it that they wanted it to sound like, exactly. and that's what got the Justice Department turned against them and the FBI investigating. Um, but this vast amount of um, government was sympathetic within the days of the arrival. Waters had created a full-scale lobbying effort in Washington with several sympathetic congressmen. Um, veterans hounded the representatives and crowned their office too, so that definitely helped. So, like, the representatives were trying to just carry out everyday business, but there's like sixteen. 16- Dudes that smell like crap piled in their office because they live in a shanty town out back. And you know what? Can like, I... yo, where's my money? Where's my money? Where's the money, bro? Yeah. Where's the money, bro? I see you can uh, you can afford that sweet tweed jacket, but where the fuck's my money? <laughs> Smedley. <laughs> I assume there's lots of people named Smedley. Yeah, back. that's what I feel like too. You Smedley, fuck. <laughs> Chester. So, uh, I want to I want to point out like how Waters like was so organized like. With his own fucking shanty army that he had. Basically, the bonus expeditionary force was organized in military fashion as well. He was elected regimental commander and had subordinate commanders that were appointed. He had buglers for state teams. He even had fucking military police empowered to maintain discipline. And for and to discipline and formations and marching, marching drills were held for his army. So, like, he held... He held marching drills for, like, to go and protest? Yes. Nice. Which is, holy shit. You know who does that today? Antifa. (laughs) (laughs) Fun fact. Very. Uh, But uh, I just thought of how how interesting that was, because he just gathered up a bunch of fucking, all of his buddies and said, hey, let's do this uh, one army thing one more time. I mean, it's the only thing they were good at. Yeah. uh, Which I can sympathize with. Yeah, that's true. Um, you know, and he was really good at either motivating or guilt-tripping these representatives to force this project through. Um, but, you know, eventually the realities of government happened, and government back then is a lot like government now, just with different names, um, and people started bullshitting them. <laughs> One congressman, and Edward Elsick of Tennessee, who was speaking on favor of the bill, simply dropped dead in the middle of a speech... That probably wasn't a good omen. What the fuck? Yeah. Uh, just dead, gone. He's um, probably drinking old crow. Yeah, that's how I'm going to die. Uh, on June 17th, Waters was summoned to the Senate and informed the bill had been defeated. In the following days, many marchers just gave up and went home defeated, and I can hardly blame them. I mean, they had done the, I, I don't know, the, probably the most politically successful large gathering of people 
that I have personally heard of, right. they actually got a fill on the floor. And, and I know well, that's going to sound stupid when you think that we just broke the record recently for the Me Too marches for the, the largest gathering of people in the United States, but that legislatively did nothing. Right. Um, during the Vietnam War, all the peace marches legislatively did nothing. Uh, during the Iraq War, the Code Pink marches did legislatively nothing. Um, which speaks volumes of the representality of our government, but these guys actually got a bill on the floor. Uh, it was shot down, but at least they did. Yeah. Um, but Waters and around 20,000 others said, we will stay here until 1945 if necessary to get our bonuses. And a lot of guys didn't even have anywhere to go either way. No. Being unemployed. So a lot of the times the Hooverville was their home. Yeah. They built their homes. I mean, that was probably the same situation they'd find themselves in Portland or Seattle right, or Detroit or wherever they came from. Um, it's not like they had any jobs to go back to. There exactly. were no jobs available. Um, to make matters worse, they're making the government incredibly nervous. Um, so despite the fact that they were unarmed and never once threatened violence, the government was terrified at the idea of some kind of popular insurrection being touched off by them. And, you know, there's 20,000 dudes camped out here in the capital, but... You have to think, nationwide, hundreds of Hoovervilles full of desperate people who are looking for someone to blame for what they're going through. And uh, maybe they weren't entirely wrong at pointing a finger at the federal government, but at the same time, who better to be the vanguard for some kind of popular insurrection than a whole bunch of pissed-off veterans camped on the front lawn? Right. And there's a lot of people that I would soon try to play devil's advocate, like say that some of these vets are basically asking for a payment that was not yet due. And but it was their money. Have, and don't think they have much of a case that sounds more like an organized like temper tantrum. I know that's very devil's advocate. Hot take. Yes. Hot take. And I know, that's why I feel like some people would probably take it as. So, uh, I would say historical revisionism would find you correct in that. Yes. People and that seems to be a thing that there would be a legion of bootlickers who would side with the federal government here, right? In that they technically were not due payment until 1945. Um, but that's you know, it's kind of weird when you look at the the crowd that would, would scream that argument, would also be the ones who would call for a small government in the first place. Uh, and a lot of these dudes would go right back to war in the 1940s yeah. before they even got their fucking bonuses. Yeah. Well, sorry, before they're even scheduled to get their bonuses. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's just. I know some people would probably think that way because I know a lot of people who would. I know a lot I of people who think that way currently. Yeah. Um, probably about me um, and how I collect a check every month. Yeah. But um, so around the same time that all this is happening, conditions in the camp began to worsen as popular support was withdrawn. On July 28th, President Hoover ordered Police Chief Glassford to evict them, must, which must have really sucked because only a short while ago, Glassford, a World War I veteran himself, had toured the camp and gifted the veterans with food, supplies, and organized medical care for them. So he's probably pretty conflicted about the whole situation. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, orders are orders. It's a Great Depression. He doesn't listen. He's probably out unemployed just like with the vets, and right? He's living in the Hoovervilles with them. So, same old ball sweat, I'm not, dick cheese. And, and I'm not giving them a pass here. Um, following orders that are bad orders make you a bad person. Um, oh, yeah, I totally agree. But this is different times, I suppose. I won't, I'm not going to give them credit for historical revisionism here, because we no. never did that. We never gave that, uh, we never extended that hand to anybody else that we've ever covered. But I guess at least he's conflicted. I don't, I don't know. He's not the donkey here, but he's definitely an asshole. Because, I mean, he was just uh, organizing medical care for these dudes. Right. Um, his past support, however, did not stop him from obeying orders and unleashing a phalanx of 100 policemen on the veterans. And this is where Glassford is a donkey, because he sent in 100 dudes against thousands of dudes who he apparently forgot that were just fighting in the Western Front, fighting off waves of, veter of veteran German infantry and charging across the horrible killing fields of World War One. Those hundred cops didn't stand a fucking chance. No, dude. <laughs> like, I can imagine some of the veterans go into one of those fucking uh, Hank Hill's grandpa's fucking PTSD rages. And yeah. Just, ah! Fucking... So, the veterans who were once unarmed armed themselves with bricks, bits of wood, and anything else they get their hands on and just went the fucking town on the cops. 
At one point, a policeman opened fire because they're cheaters, and the veteran, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they ran off. Uh, one was all over, one veteran lay dead, and one was mortally wounded. Three policemen were injured by flying bricks. Now, once the understanding uh, that General MacArthur had was gone, um, he had enough of this shit. Um, and taking direct control of regular army units, which is, I don't think, something a chief of staff has ever done before since. No. Um, he ordered the camp, which is Camp Marks, to be cleared. And at this point um, in D.C., uh, like Nick had said, uh, the vets had moved into abandoned buildings. They had been on the streets because um, they had effectively been gifted to them. Hey. There's about 8,000 of them were in various buildings around the city. Um, it was only a fraction of the once used bonus force, but it was still sizable. Well, there's also women and children set up in these camps as well. They took their whole families because these dudes who, best case scenario, were working odd jobs on the side. Oh, yeah. Handyman type shit. Like, that's the only thing I could really imagine. Handyman. And this is like, the 1930s. They're not going to wire money home. No. They're not going to mail money home. They all, they, if they went to D.C., their whole family went with them. Um, but, and, you know, thousands of civilians had come down, to include women and children, to witness what was going on in the streets. Because they realized, oh, shit, shit has changed. The cops are fighting him. Um, you know, veterans are chucking bricks at people. Like, something's changed. And, you know, this is... 1930s during the Great Depression. It's not like they're watching TV or going to work. This is their yeah, entertainment. Yeah. <laughs> um, I imagine they just go watch buildings on fire, go watch crime scenes. Like, oh, cool shit. Yeah. It's like, it was like uh, the NCIS, except, you know, Constable Bill is thrashing that dude upside the head. And no commercials. Yeah. The only commercial break was when a kid ran by the newspaper. <laughs> uh, so an eyewitness, uh, a guy named Fred Belcher, was 16 years old and was standing on the corner uh, that day waiting for a trolley. And he said, quote, By God, all of a sudden, I see these cavalrymen come up the avenue, swinging down at the mall, which is the area where the veterans were camped at. I thought it was a parade, Belcher later said. I asked a gentleman standing there, I said, do you know what's going on? What holiday is this? He said, no, it's, it's no parade, bud. He said, the army is coming on to wipe all these bonus people out of here. That's right. I said cavalrymen. And I say this wearing a Stetson. Some conflicted. Nearly 200 mounted cavalry, sabers drawn, rode out, led by someone you may have heard of, a Major George S. Patton. And <laughs> we are going to take a sidestep here to talk about George S. Patton, who would eventually go on to lead uh, the United States Army to glory in Western Europe. But he was an unrepentant piece of shit. Dude was a bucket of piss, dude. Um, Major Patton was an alcoholic who fucked his niece was a vicious anti-Semite and racist. And he actually, during World War II, would physically abuse several of his soldiers who had broken down into fits of PTSD. Right. And now, while I understand PTSD was not fully understood at the time, this kind of physical abuse towards uh, mentally broken soldiers didn't even happen during World War I. I, I feel like all he cared about was his ego. Yeah, his and ego just... and... like as, So... Pralines and Dick. He was an absolute. <laughs> he was an absolutely amazing tactical commander. He was the anti Pavel Gratchev, and that he was really, really good at big operations and terrible when the magnifying glass got put on him. Right. You can also play devil's advocate on that one too. Is that he was going up a up against a almost defeated Wehrmacht army who was fucking battered to hell. And those actions in Italy and North America were pretty solid, too. North America? So North Africa. We are getting into the North America actions. <laughs> um, and, you know, you, sure, you can say that he was following orders and you would not be wrong. Um, but to further underline how big of a piece of shit he was. Um, so during World War I, uh, Patton was wounded and had to be drugged to safety by a soldier that served alongside of him, an enlisted man who drug him to safety under enemy fire. Um, that man was in the bonus army. 
And he came up to uh, Major Patton and said, Sir, please don't do this. Patton's first and only words out of his mouth towards that man were, arrest that man. And it should be noted, Patton absolutely recognized and knew him. Right. So the dude's name was uh, Joe Angelo. Yep. And Patton went on to quote saying, I do not know this man. Take him away and under no, cir- under no circumstances permit him to return. But Patton absolutely knew him. Yes. There's no way that he did not know him. Um at all. Uh, it was a cop-out in front of his men. And that is me speculating, as sure. But as someone who has been involved in combat, you do not forget somebody who does something like that. Ever. Um, but Patton's a dick. More dick than pralines. But So, those 200 cavalry were followed by five tanks... And 300 armed infantrymen, bayonets fixed, and loaded rifles. This is the first and only time tanks have ever been rolled through an American street in offensive capabilities. Um, I wish that could be the first and only time armed infantrymen have been mustered like that, (laughs) but uh, Kent State happened. Uh. So the charging cavalry didn't seem to care who was who, and they drove everyone back off the streets. Soon the veterans and the civilians that were along with them were driven back to Camp Marks, their backs against the river. MacArthur, still in command, gave the marchers 20 minutes to evacuate the women and children from the camp. Some left, and many families stuck together. They were terrified of what might happen to them next. I mean, could you really blame them? I don't think in their wildest dreams they could ever imagine that the the Federal Army is going to be sent against them. Right. And now that MacArthur, the guy who literally just chased them off the streets with tanks and sabers, is telling them to leave and they'll be safe, would you trust them? Well, yeah. So, so, a lot of them stayed where they were. And among these uh, camps that they've raided, Camp Anacostia? That's the river that it was based on. Right. And uh, they basically burned that shit to the ground. Right. He set it on fire and uh, launched tear gas into the camps. In the end, 55 were injured, a veteran's wife miscarried, and 12-week-old Bernard Meyer died of tear gas inhalation. These were against unarmed veterans. And this is not like when the cops came down on them. They did not try to line up and fight these guys. Right. They ran for their lives. The marchers who were not stabbed, shot, were arrested, retreated towards the Maryland state line, where they boarded trucks who, that MacArthur had set up for them and slowly trickled back home. MacArthur held a press conference afterwards saying that, quote, had he let it go another week, the institutions of the government would have been threatened. And the funny thing about this is both President Hoover at the time and MacArthur would claim that the Bonus Army was comprised of communists and criminals that were intent on destroying the government of the United States. Right, and like I said before, while there were communist and social sympathies in the ranks, this was absolutely no means a communist movement. The United States has never, and probably will never, see a communist movement that is 50,000 veterans strong. Um, It's, um, I guess, maybe in the 60s, but they didn't even really understand what communism was, as much as it was anti-government. But they framed it as... They're enemies of the state. They had to be taken care of. Right. Um, unfortunately for him and the entire government, this reframing just didn't work. Uh, newsreels, like the one that we had played at the intro of this episode, showed Sick the... fade. Yeah. Just so So smooth. <laughs> uh, showed the cavalry charging on unarmed marchers, and those newsreels played all around the country, leading people to publicly boo the army and President Hoover. Three months later, Hoover lost his bid at re-election to President Franklin Delano Roosevelt in a landslide. Um, President Hoover was fucking sitting on a fucking parking uh, a fucking parking cone, ordering the troops on these veterans. This dude's a dick. He was bad, um, but he's he's not the only one to blame. Um, no, he's not, and that's why I think both him, MacArthur. Patton. Patton. Fucking straight. And I'm giving Eisenhower a little bit of a pass, because Eisenhower was also involved. Eisenhower was the deputy chief right. of the Army at the time. 
um, which I have a, a few quotes from him here in a little bit, which are enlightening, um, it, which is something Eisenhower always tends to be. But like a lot of people currently in government, like who I won't name, uh, Eisenhower has a lot of really good quotes and not a lot of really good action uh, to go with them. And, and this is not discounting him as a military commander. No. Um, I will say that Patton was a piece of shit as a man and a military commander. Can't say the same for Eisenhower. Um, so, unfortunately for the bonus marchers, horrible shit was not being done visiting on them. Um, so, in 1935, one of the government programs that came out was a rehabilitation camp system. And I know what the feeling for the term rehabilitation camp is. It's not what this is. It was like working camp. You go build trails out in the woods, um, things like that. It was to put them to work building infrastructure. Right. Unfortunately for them, the camp they remember on the Florida Keys. And, um, well, a hurricane swept through the area and killed about 200 of them. Jesus. Yeah. Um, so, in the backlash, I guess I can call it the backlash of what happened with the Bonus Army. How, if you were to play the layman here, how do you feel like these military officers were punished for their actions? At this time? I mean, could you imagine, say, next week, me, you, and 20,000 of our buddies march on Olympia here and demand something, and uh, Joint Base Lewis and Accord sends strikers down the road and machine guns us. What do you think happens? Well, for uh, our thing, uh, there's a lot of shit that would happen, but for their time, I don't think a lot of shit would happen. Absolutely nothing all. happened. Yeah, there no. are no repercussions for anybody involved, other than I guess you could say Hoover because he lost the election, which he was probably going to lose team. anyway. He like, was going to yeah. lose anyway. Yeah, I mean they named their shanty towns after him for a reason. Um, How shitty they were, just like their president. But I mean, I'm not even saying that MacArthur and Patton should have been railroaded out of the military and thrown in jail, though that would have been nice. But you think their careers at least would have been fucking tanked? Yeah, like leading men into battle. Against men. against their own people. Yeah. Um, so none of that ever happened. None of their careers were impacted in any way. And two of the commanders involved ended up becoming supreme commanders um, at one time or another. And one became a two-time president of the United States. Um, so with, it, with an interview with historian Stephen Ambrose... Um, General MacArthur's aide during this time, a Dwight Eisenhower, like we said, later said the situation, I quote, I told that stupid son of a bitch not to go down there. There's no place there for the chief of staff. Yeah. Um, don't get your hopes up, though. He fully endorsed MacArthur's actions and didn't, just didn't like the optics of the chief of staff personally or in the crushing of a veteran gathering in public. Right. Um, police chief Glassford resigned in disgust. Um, and... As a small, microscopic cherry on this fucking shit cake, Congress passed the Adjusted Compensation Act in 1936, and the veterans, who were still alive at this point, finally got their goddamn bonuses. Um, now, Fuck yeah. I said before I was going to pose a question, and you covered it briefly, um, but do you think the veterans were right? in marching for their bonuses. I believe they are. Right. In all honesty, I believe they earned it in every way fighting on the Western Front. I agree. He's seeing those horrors. But, like I said, how other people, like how they view it, which I've gone over, right. they might see it the other way. But that's how I see it. I, I believe they deserve it 100%. I agree with you to the extent that their bonuses that they got on initial enlistment were obviously horseshit. Oh yeah, and Completely. the 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 bill that the government passed was a cop out because they were hoping in twenty years a large chunk of these dudes were going to be dead. That's why I feel like it was like a huge IOU. Yeah, and that's what it was. And this, I mean, it's during the Great Depression. I understand that they're hurting for money, but I mean, don't start wars if you can't fucking pay for them. Right. I mean, it's, just, it's just like uh, you know, if you have to try to find money of where to. To, to pay for veterans' benefits or to pay for college or to pay for the VA, then you don't have the money for war. And this is obviously discounting uh, acts of national defense, which World War One was not. No. 
actually none of the wars that we went over here other than the revolution were wars of national defense. So if they couldn't find the money for them, then they didn't have the money to fight them. And that's something I feel to this day. And uh, another reason I, I touched on it briefly why we don't get taught a lot about this is because um, uh, we don't like remembering how badly this country treats our veterans. And I don't mean... Uh, so I will say that I have been decently taken care of to the extent of the services that I rendered and that I have gotten everything I was promised. Um, I have my, my college money. I have my disability paycheck. I have my health care because of the situation in which I found myself. That being said, it has been a long road to get to this point. Um, to this day, there is still, I mean, the VA system is a complete mess. Oh, yeah. But I'm pretty sure the VA spends more money on support our troops bumper stickers than actually fixing the VA. And we don't put the people in place that could fix the VA to fix the VA. Um, we don't invest in things and infrastructure that could help bases like, I think it was Bragg that had water that was poisoning people, and Camp Lejeune had water that was poisoning people, and they gave people malaria pills that caused them to kill themselves and get cancer. Um, burn pits that give people lung cancer. Mm -hmm. um, it's all window dressing. Uh, it, it, it's a window dressing to say that we're taking care of you. And I think that's something that Coolidge was going for when he says patriotism paid for is not patriotism because he was saying effectively, um, you know, you serve because you love it. Stop complaining about it. That I think the only thing missing was him calling somebody a snowflake. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Um, I know that's a, it's a little bit off topic, but well, I, I mean, it might be a hundred years in the past, but I also feel like it couldn't be more current. Very. Um, no, yeah, I can see that. And because the benefits that you get when you get out, I don't know when you're going to get out, but they're going to be different than the benefits that I got when I got out because they're cutting them right. to effectively because nobody's looking. Um, and that's what they did with these guys. They, they stopped getting their, their land plots. They stopped getting a, a larger... Uh, differential in pay because nobody was paying attention. Um, and that's what they're doing. Uh, they're, they're saying that we all love you and we, and you're our sacred cow and you fight for our freedom. But then the second you actually ask to be taken care of your freeloader and a whatever else, in this case, you're a communist that needs to be put down. Right. We need to burn your shit down. Yeah. I mean, it's timeless and it always will be for as long as we're an imperial power right. and, and we're constantly doing shit like this. But that's not here or there with the Bonus Army. That is a podcast that I'm not sure that I have the right to host. Um, there's other podcasts that are better. But that is the Bonus Army now that everybody's yes. really depressed and sad. Um, Sorry this episode wasn't very uh, upbeat. You know, but uh, it's important. Sometimes, and somebody asked us why we started this podcast, and I think this is a good example. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, there's, there's great podcasts out there that focus on very important parts in history. Um, the Age of Napoleon covers the Napoleonic area better than we ever will. Oh, yeah. Um, I totally agree. The Revolutions podcast covers revolutions better than we ever will. Uh, Dan Carlin will cover World War I better than we ever will. Um, but... There's not a lot of podcasts out there that are going to cover the small points in history that aren't necessarily, um, you know, world-defining, and they're not necessarily the the most well-known. And I think that's where we where we come in, and uh, that we can kind of say, you know, the Bonus Army wasn't a footnote in history. No. The Bonus Army could happen in 2020. Yeah. When when we have a million pissed off global war on terrorism veterans, like, hey, what happened to our college money? You know, we signed something saying this is what we get. Where did it go? This is yeah, something that will happen again. 20-page IOU. You know, and you, I promise this is something that will happen again. Because the, the army that was created during World War One is a lot like the army that was created for the global war on terror. Not that it was conscription, because World War One was. Yes. But the army grew unsubstainably for years to the point that it simply couldn't be controlled or funded. And in order to appease them, 
they created something they knew they wouldn't have to handle 20 years in the future. Um, and that's what's happening now. And that's what's going to happen in 10 years from now in our next war or 15 years from now when my kid that I don't have yet is fighting a war. Um, whatever your promise, whatever he's promised, just isn't going to be there. And then there's, it's going to happen again. And I think that's why our, not necessarily our podcast in particular, but topics like this is, in, is important. Oh, yeah. I totally agree. Um, I always feel the green weenie is always looming around the corner. It is. And wherever I go. It's kind of like a shadow in that you may escape it for as long as the light's on, but you'll turn it off. It'll be there. So, thanks for tuning in again, now that we've made everybody nice and sad. Um, we're doing a Q&A. Um, I posted on the Twitter. Um, you can DM me or Nick directly on Twitter. I'm pretty responsive on my personal account. You can leave it on the podcast account if you'd like. I'll answer as fast as you can. Um, I haven't done this on the podcast before, but my book, The Hooligans of Kandahar, comes out on August Love 19th. It. Um, buy my book, buy my book. I enjoy eating food. Um, <laughs> Um, it's been highly reviewed, and if everybody who listens to this podcast buys a book, then I will be able to afford a month of rent. So yeah. that would be lovely. You know what? I'm, I consider myself a avid book reader, but this one was by far one of the easier ones I've read of, uh, based on the military shit I usually read. It took me about three sittings, and it was really fucking good. Thank you. Um, also, uh, anything you'd like to talk about, plug anything you're reading right now? Uh, anything I'd like to plug is probably the, uh, A Hell in a Very Small Place. It is uh, fucking amazing. By it's about Bernard DM, Fall. Yes, one of the DM premier DM military history. So fucking good. He also wrote another book called The Streets of No Joy, uh, about the French War in Indochina, which I am familiarly, uh, familiar with, because my grandpa fought in it, um, before the Americans got there. And I really hope we do cover Dien Bien Phu in the Oh, we absolutely will. Because, uh, this book is fucking amazing. Yeah, we are lining up some interviews with uh, some doctors of military history and an armor officer with the United States Army who uh, fancies himself a armor historian, which will be really interesting. Um, so, yeah, find that Q&A. Ask us how literally anything. We'll answer it. Literally um, fucking anything. Yeah. Um, we do not care. We are Serious or fun. not. Um, I, someone asked me a very, very, very deep philosophical question on the Vietnam War in comparison to the war in Afghanistan. And then somebody asked me who I'd like to get fucked up with. Um, so, it, like, literally anything's cool. Literally anything goes, and it's great. Yeah. Um, so, follow us on all of the social media things. I'm at jcast99. NickCastM1. And the podcast is at lions underscore by. Um, so, that is it for today. Like, share, and review us, because we need your sweet, sweet reviews. And we will see you next time. Later.